This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, we are here to talk about a very, very topical issue. Honesty, the philosophy and psychology of a neglected virtue, written by Christian B. Miller. Dr. Christian B. Miller is a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University. He's also currently the director of the Honesty Project, and he'll tell us about the Honesty Project in a little bit. Uh, the book was published by Oxford University Press, and it came out, if I'm not mistaken, in 2021. Yep. Uh, Christian, welcome to New Books Network. It's great to be with you today. Uh, before we start talking about the book, I'm interested to know more about your background, and then uh, maybe then after that you can tell us uh, what made you decide to write a book about honesty and also about the honesty project that um, of which you were a director. Sure, sure, love to. Uh, so I got interested in philosophy going way back in high school, um, earlier than most people do. I got exposed to some philosophical writings, took some college classes. In high school, went off to Princeton, majored in philosophy with a focus on virtue and character. So already early on, I was kind of trending in that direction. Uh, off to graduate school at Notre Dame, uh, where I ended up writing my dissertation in the area of ethics. Uh, went on the job market in 2004, was hired at Wake Forest University, where I've been ever since for the last 19 years. Uh, started out mostly working on some other issues in uh, ethics having to do with meta-ethics or the foundations of morality, where morality comes from, is it objective, is it relative, those kind of issues. I did that for a while, I got tenure, and I got, I got burned out on that issue and was looking for something else to focus on. And that's where I circled back to the topic of character. Character more generally, not specifically honesty, though. Uh, virtue, vice, uh, other character traits as well directed something called the Character Project for five years. I wrote several academic books on the topic of character. And then as time went on there, I it was this kind of similar pattern where I said what I wanted to say. I kind of didn't have much more to add. So I was looking for something else to do. And instead of reinventing the wheel and starting from scratch, I thought, well, what is really neglected in the area of character? What 
what specific virtues or vices have not gotten a lot of attention? And I identified several. Uh, generosity was one. Uh, patience is another. But one that really leapt out at me about eight years or so ago was honesty. Now, you know, on the one hand, it, it's such an obvious virtue. It's so obviously so important. And every day the news is filled with stories of, unfortunately, dishonesty. But at the same time, in philosophy, almost no one was saying anything about it. So I, I look back over the literature and analytic philosophy. Um, for 50 years, there were two articles published in analytic philosophy journals. And I'm not exaggerating. So two, I can only find at least two articles. And the the most relevant book I could find went back all the way to the 70s by Cicela Bach called Lying. So I thought, wow, um, here is a, a kind of untapped area, uh, uh, fruitful, potentially fruitful and interesting and important research that needs to be done, and no one's doing it. So that led to two things on my end. One was my own research shifting in that direction, uh, that, and that ultimately culminated in the book we're going to be talking about today, the Honesty Book. But then uh, uh, concurrently with that, I talked to the John Templeton Foundation, which had funded the character project, which had funded earlier work of mine, and said, look, you know, here's this big need. Are you interested in funding research on honesty? And long story short, I won't get into all the details, they said yes. I put together a team. We uh, applied for a grant for, it ended up being five years, uh, and it was for the Honesty Project, a $4.4 million grant looking at the psychology of honesty and the philosophy of honesty, both our own team doing research on those topics, where my team was myself, some other philosophers, and some psychologists. And also we held funding competitions where we said, look, we have money to give away. Come apply to us with your new innovative research projects. We'll evaluate them and we'll fund the best projects which we ended up doing funding 16 projects all around the world, some of the psychology of honesty, some of the philosophy of honesty, uh, and so supported a whole bunch of scholars doing new work of their own, contributing their own uh, uh, new research on honesty, as well as what we were doing at Wake Forest. So um, to sum it up, uh, that project is wrapping up. My book is out. So we've succeeded in kind of doing what we promised we would do, and we've really frankly, in, in a few years, changed the landscape of research on honesty, where now it can no longer be considered a neglected virtue anymore. That that, that was quite interesting, uh, the whole story about how the book, and I actually wanted to ask you why you consider it to be a neglected virtue, but it's good that you addressed that one as well. Um, let yeah, us... Uh, I mean, let me, yeah, go on. Yeah, so I, there is one fast I didn't say anything about, which is um, it's a neglected virtue in the sense of... <laughs> But you know, scholars have not paid much attention to mm -hmm. it, uh, and philosophers have published very little. There's a puzzling question, though, of why. I mean, you know, you, you might think, look, should not have been on people's radar screens, and shouldn't people have been gravitated towards that and said a lot more? And that's the question I really don't have a great answer to. Um, you know, some virtues have got a, a fair amount of attention in philosophy, like um, humility, for example. There's a, quite a bit of research on humility. Why is it that patience, generosity, and in this case, honesty, haven't? And I think 
I mean, the best I can come up with is just that it hasn't been trendy. It hasn't been the kind of thing where people said very controversial claims and that got other people interested in it or that there was some like gripping puzzle that people saw that they gravitate towards it. So what I was trying to do also in my work was get it out there more that that there are really interesting puzzles and questions that it's worth spending more time on, but there's philosophical meat here uh, for people to chew on. Mm -hmm. Uh, let, let's talk about some definition. I know it's kind of difficult, but within the scope of your research, how do you define honesty and uh, what what makes it distinct from other definitions that have been around? Because in your book, you devote a substantial amount of chapters about previous research about honesty. So what are the key components of your approach to this uh, topic? Sure, sure. Um so for me, the starting point is I'm talking about a character trait here. I'm mm. not talking about uh, particular honest actions, like someone is on the stand in the courtroom and they're asked, you know, where were you last night? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the honest person. The honest person has the virtue of honesty as a character trait that's stable over time, that leads to honest behavior across situations, the courtroom, yes, but also the office, the home, the bar, etc. That uh, is uh, a positive character trait. It's a virtue. It's not a negative one. And, and this is where I'll expand on a little bit more. It has three main components. It has a thinking component. So it pertains to how we think about matters of honesty. It has a feeling and motivational component. So how we're moved when it comes to, say, matters of telling the truth or not cheating or not stealing. And then it has a outward behavioral component. And I think we're going to get into some of the cognitive thinking component and the motivational component later. So I'll, I'll save those. But let me uh, expand on on the behavioral side. So again, it's not one particular behavior; it's a pattern of behavior. And what I, you know, thinking about there is what is the core of honest behavior? And for me, the core is not intentionally distorting the facts as the person sees them. So that's that's a mouthful. I'll say it again, and I'll unpack it a bit more. Yeah, uh, not intentionally. So not a, not intentionally, not on purpose, distorting or misrepresenting the facts as you see them. So let me uh, approach that with an example. Um, mm -hmm. If you you know asked me uh, where were you born, and I said to you Maryland, uh, I would be t telling you the truth. I would not. That in fact, that's where I was born. I would not be intentionally distorting the facts as I see them. Uh, if I instead said I was born in Florida, then, well, that's not what I actually believe. But in my communication to you, I'm on purpose misrepresenting the facts about this matter as I see them. And then one last twist to this. Um, it's as I see them. It's not necessarily objective facts. So... Uh, what I want to really preserve is the idea is that, that someone's honesty depends upon how they see the world at the moment. You could be radically mistaken and still be an honest person. So thousands of years ago, people who thought the earth were, was flat 
they were not dishonest because of that. Um, if I, uh, if it turned out, use my example again, turned out that unbeknownst to me, I was actually born in California and I told you I was born in Maryland because that's what I would always been raised to believe. My parents taught me, but I, that's where I was from. I would not be dishonest if I said I was from Maryland, even though objectively speaking, I was from California. Um, so it's uh, to sum it up, when it comes to honesty, all that honesty pertains to lying, misleading, cheating, stealing, um, hypocrisy, BSing, and so forth. The core of our behavior has to do with, when we're honest, not intentionally destroying the facts as we see them. And uh, in the book, you, uh, you 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 have well, you have four desiderata with to to discuss honesty. I know that it's kind of complicated because you go through them all in more details. But can you very very briefly tell us what these four are? Yep, yep, sure, sure. Uh, some of them are pretty very straightforward. They're probably like any accounts of any virtue you would want to uh, mm. uh, have these as your as your criteria. For example, um, avoid counterintuitive results. So you don't want your account to tell you, oh, this is actually honest, but clearly it's not, or vice versa. Um, another one is um, make sure it has plausible implications for the vices too, so that it makes sense. It gives an account of the virtue of honesty, but also will say plausible things by implication about uh, the vice of dishonesty. Uh, a third one is uh, it had better make sure that honesty is still a virtue. It's still a good thing. If you give an account of honesty and it turns out to be something that we really don't, doesn't look very desirable, not something you'd actually want to grow in or cultivate, that doesn't fit with what I'm hoping to do of talking about the virtue and excellence of character. And then the last one is a little bit specific to my my book, and it's a little bit more jargony, so I'll, I'll pause and unpack it a little bit more. It's called mm -hmm. Meet, the Meet the Unification Challenge. So I, I have this thing called the Unification Challenge. And to see what this is, I think we really need to appreciate how broad in scope honesty is. It's, this is one of the first things that struck me when I started working on it. It pertains to so much of our moral lives. When you first think about it, you think, well, like, what does honesty pertain to? Well, it pertains to lying. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Everyone says that right off the bat. And that's true. I mean, you can't be a, uh, a systematic liar and be honest. But there's a heck of a lot more to honesty than just that. It also has to do with not misleading people. So you can say something true, but in a very misleading way to try and get people to draw a false conclusion. It has to do with stealing. It has to do with cheating. It has to do with promises. It has to do with hypocrisy, not, not being a hypocrite. It has to do with BS, bullshit, but Frankfurt, Harry, the philosopher Harry Frankfurt very famously has, has discussed, um, and fraud and other things too. So the point being that now look at look at that from that perspective, honesty covers a lot of moral territory. Well, if that's right, what does all that have in common? What is it that connects lying, cheating, stealing, da 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 to honesty so that 
Uh, if I said, this is what honesty is about, it pertains to all of them. That's the unification challenge. If you're going to give an account of your honesty, you better have your account speak to all those different areas of morality in an informed way. And I try to do that with my accounts as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, one, one distinction you make in your book is the distinction between virtuous honesty and honest actions. What, what is that distinction? Yep, that's good. Um, so I, I, I want to say, a, let's just talk about honest action mm -hmm. as any action in and of itself, by itself, that's honest. Uh, that doesn't tell you anything about the person who does it. So it could be that a honest person does an honest action. It could be that a dishonest person does an honest action. Why would that be? Well, look, even dishonest people, unless they're really, you know, f foolish or silly, will do honest actions in certain cases so as not to get in trouble. Like, you know, they won't cheat from, or they won't steal from the supermarket when a police officer is standing right next to them. So uh, a honest action can be done by anyone. It's just that particular action in isolation. It does not follow that it's done from the virtue of honesty. But a, the uh, honesty itself is a character trait. It's a virtue of a person. And a, a the virtue of honesty gives rise to or leads to honest actions. So there, that you start with a trait of honesty that causes the person to behave honestly. Uh, but you can't go from the opposite direction. You can't say, oh, there's a person doing an honest action in the supermarket or on the stand in the courtroom or at the bar. Therefore, that person must be an honest person. That is a bad form of reasoning. Mm. And can you talk about the unification challenge in your book? What do you mean by unification challenge? Yeah, so I, I, I touched on that already. Yeah. Um, that was one of the four Desirata. Um, maybe I'll... I'll you want to expand us. a bit yeah, on that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll, I'll remind us and then I'll, I'll say how I think uh, my account can fit with that unification challenge. Um, so, so again, unification challenge is trying to uh, explain what it is that all the different areas of morality are have in common that connects them to honesty. And so I say what what unifies all of them is not intentionally distorting the facts as the person sees them. So I've already given an example about that when it comes to lying. If you lie, you intentionally distort the facts. So maybe let's shift to a couple other examples and see how in other areas of morality, there's that's still going on. Intentionally distorting the facts is still going on when you fail to be honest. So let's shift to cheating, for example. Uh, someone who, uh, let's say, is, is, is an athlete and uses performance-enhancing drugs. Well, when, when, when the drugs are, are uh, you know, banned, let's, let's make sure that we're clear that the the sport does not allow it. So we'll, you know, mm. Alex Rodriguez in baseball or Lance Armstrong in cycling. Kind of famous examples of people who were caught being dishonest. Why? Because they cheated. What were they doing? They were intentionally distorting the facts. How? Uh, they were intentionally distorting the facts as to their performance being the results solely of their own ability. It was not. They presented it as if it was just their ability, just their own 
raw talent in hitting the baseball or cycling up the mountain, when in fact what was going on was uh, it was their ability plus the help from the drug. So they were intensely destroying the facts as to their performance in the sport. They were cheating, and that my account can capture that. Uh, to take one more example, let's switch to stealing. So, uh, you know, someone steals, uh, let's say in school, someone steals a, a pencil. Uh, a, a child steals a pencil from another child and starts using the pencil and tries to make it seem as if it's his or her pencil, if it's as if it belongs to him, when it, in fact it doesn't. So they're intensely distorting the facts as to whose property it is. They're presenting this as if it were their property, when in fact it is not their property. So again, um, what unifies all these different areas is this, what I'm saying, intentionally distorting the facts in the case of dishonesty, or not intentionally distorting the facts in the case of honesty, and that's my solution to the unification challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one thing I like about your book is, is the examples that you provide in the book um, to, to sort of contextualize your arguments. Um, now, one question I have in the book, you have, for example, the case of Nazi at the door and uh, Huckfin, uh, which is my favorite one. Uh, and when I was reading your book, I was actually reminded of a short story by Mark Twain. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the name of the short story was White Lie. Uh, but anyway, I could be wrong, but there, we had a story about about white lies. Anyhow, uh, what is the, in what circumstances, let's say, because some people might think that lying is permissible if you want to avoid harm to others, but uh, you being a philosopher sort of complicated this issue. So what is the complication associated with it? And it would be great if you could give us one example, maybe the case of Nazi to do or hard free up to you. Sure, sure, sure. So I, I say I'm embarrassed. I don't know that short story and I, I should know it, so I need to go track it down after we're finished, because <laughs> uh, that's that's right up my alley. Um, so, so now we're switching from the definition of honesty to the morality of honesty, mm -hmm. and so so now the question arises: um, Is honesty always morally required? And there's been you know debates about that famously throughout Western philosophy, and I, I don't know other traditions of philosophy as well, but at least in the West, uh, people like Augustine. And Kant thought, for example, for instance, that lying is always morally wrong. And then plenty of other people have been on the other side and argue that it's morally permissible. There are different cases you can look at to focus the discussion. You already brought up white lies, and we could talk about, you know, how does that dress look on me? How does the tie look on me? How is the dessert? Did you like the presents? Et cetera, et cetera. That's a, a category of examples, but um, you, 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 uh, also highlighted Nazi at the door. And if you want, we can talk about Huck Finn too, but let's just mm -hmm. spend a moment on, on Nazi at the door. Uh, this one I think is the one that really sharpens the issue and pushes most people in the direction of saying lying is morally permissible. So the example, just to remind everyone, is it's a World War II example. Uh, you are a homeowner, you're protecting a family of Jews in the basement. In an occupied town during World War II, the Nazis are going door to door in a routine patrol. They have no reason to suspect you. They're just going knocking door to door and saying, do you know where any Jews are? Here they come to your door. They knock on your door. You open the door. The 
the, the Nazi says, do you know where any Jews are? And now you're faced with a choice. You can, well, you have a variety of things you could do. You could say, yes, they're in my basement. You could say, no, I haven't seen any. You could be silent. Uh, you could try to deflect the conversation. Like, you know, would you like to come in and have a, a bite to eat? There are different things you can do, but the, the, um, the forced choice example is one where either you tell the truth or you lie. That's the only two, two options you have. And overwhelmingly, when I ask my students and I ask other people, what would you do? They would they say, uh, I would lie. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that it looks like in that kind of case, if they're right, if we if accept that answer, um, that's a case where morally it's required to be dishonest um, or morally it's required to lie. So that's my answer as well. Um, I think honesty is important, but it's not the only thing that matters when it comes to morality. Other factors matter too. And we need to weigh them up to see which is most important. And in a case like this, honesty is one factor, but compassion is another factor or care or whatever benevolence um, is another factor. And the lives of the Jewish family outweigh the negative value of lying to the Nazi at the door. Uh, so when you do the balancing act, uh, I think the overall evaluation is it would be morally, not just permissible, but actually morally required to lie to the Nazi at the door. Uh, now there's, that's, that's the short version of what I say. There's a lot more wrinkles to that. So I'll just give you real quick, I won't pursue them, but I'll just give you a little bit of taste of, of some of the wrinkles. For example, um, the medieval th theologian Grotius thought that uh, you only lie to those who have a right to the truth. Well, the Nazi doesn't have a right to the truth, so it wouldn't be a lie to say, I don't know what any Jews are to the Nazi. Um, that's one different take. I don't buy that, but that's a different take. Uh, a, a philosopher very recently named Alex Proust, who teaches at Baylor, had yet another interesting take. He said, well, actually, if you say, I don't know where any Jews are, you're telling the truth, even though you know about the family in the basement. I know his, his clever uh, take on this was to say, well, you are using the word Jew in the way the Nazi is using it to, to mean something like animal or subhuman or, you know, being with no moral value. And so the Nazi is using the term that way. You respond and say, well, actually, I don't know where any beings like that are. I know where some Jews are about moral worth. They're in the basements. But you didn't ask me that. You asked me this question about Jew in your sense. I'm answering in your sense, and I don't know where they, those are. That's on the truth. So that's a pretty clever uh, way to think about the case, too. Again, I won't pursue it uh, here, but just to show that it's, it's not so straightforward of an example as it might initially seem. Yeah, you're right. And when you were responding to this, and also when I was reading the book, uh, we know that we, especially in the past few years, this new term, alternative facts, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, they have, again, resurfaced all these concepts again. And there are politicians, for example, or there are political groups who might lie for their, or may not tell the truth for their own political interest. And sometimes it begs a question, is that morally justified or not? It especially with what's going on right now in the Middle East as well. There are two groups fighting one another. They both use propaganda. 
They both want to win sympathy of people or support of the world for the cause. And it just, uh, I guess it just makes the book even more timely when, when we, when, when we think about all these issues, um, whether, whether we can, whether, whether simple lying is, is, is a vice or a virtue. Anyway, I'm mm-hmm. just rambling, but, yeah. but you know, I guess what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I'll comment briefly. Um, so I think it's a great place to extend the discussion. The Nazi ex- example is interesting, but it's also a bit artificial and, and kind of, I mean, a hopefully rare example. Uh, but there are plenty of other political examples. My approach is to be very careful about this, though, and not kind of paint broad strokes. So I would want to go kind of case by case. And as a moral philosopher, I want to know all the details I can. And so, you know, when it comes to what's going on in the Middle East today, I, I am very nervous about making any pronouncements because I'm not an expert in the conflict. And I would want to, you know, spend a lot of time getting up to speed on the history and the nuances, which which I'm not uh, uh, you know aware of. Um, I will say, you know, I can imagine examples, let's abstract from the Middle East. You know, I can imagine political examples where I think, yeah, it probably is justifiable to be to lie. Or at least we have to think about different uh, kinds of deception here. You know, either lie or not, or withhold information, uh, or mislead, or whatnot. You know, for example, um, plan military plans. Uh, I, I think it's justifiable for the leader of a country to not disclose all the military plans ahead of time, uh, not disclose uh, nuclear secrets, not disclose, um, you know, imminent battle plans, and so forth. Uh, even if asked point blank. You know, when is the attack going to start or how many uh, tanks are going to be committed to this assault or whatnot? Um, it seems to me in those kind of cases, other factors outweigh what honesty might require. Mm. Um, let's go back to the book again. Uh, what is so when you talk about the role of motivation in your account of honesty, then can we say all motive sits well with the idea of honesty being a virtue? And you also talk about an interesting concept called interested motivation. Um, can you talk about these points, please? Mm, sure, sure, sure. So remember, the, the larger picture is I'm talking about the virtue honesty. I said it has three sides, the thinking side, the motivational side, and the behavioral side. So far, we've focused on the behavioral side, mm. but I think that there has to be more to it. So someone who you know, uh, tells the truth to the boss but only so as to avoid getting punished, only to look good, to try and get a promotion, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're acting honestly, go back to that distinction again, their action is honest, but they're not an honest person. It depends on what's behind their action, what they're, where they're coming from, what their heart is like. And so for me, and I, this is not unique to me, most philosophers who think about character and virtue think that motivation matters. That some motives are virtuous and some motives are not. Mm. And I'll, they'll, they'll probably tell different stories about which ones are which. So in my case, I think for honesty, it's not anything goes. There are some motives that are great or virtuous, but some are not. And how I divide it up, at least as a first pass, is now to answer you, the, the second part of your question, self-interested motivation, I say, is off the table. Self-interested motivation is motivation aimed at benefiting yourself. Um, so if it's 
go, my example already uh, had that, you know, to try and get a promotion at work, to avoid getting punished, uh, to uh, overcome feelings of guilt, to get rewards in the afterlife, to make a good impression on a cute girl or guy or whatnot. Um, these are all motives where I'm ultimately concerned with myself and benefiting myself, and the other person is a means to help me get there. Uh, like other virtues besides honesty, I don't think that can be the right kind of motivation for a virtue of honesty. Uh, instead, let's shift to what is okay. I have a what I call a pluralist approach. Um, so I don't think there's just one okay motive. I think there is a variety of motivations that are okay, so long as they're not self-interested. So let me take that down at a level of abstraction. Uh, motives having to do with benefiting another person, um, you know, caring about someone else, loving someone else, being concerned with someone else, uh, because and the person's my friend, because the person's my parent. Those kind of motives are just fine. They are selfless or altruistic motives focused on what's good for someone else. Another category, which I think is also fine, is dutiful motivation. That has to do with right and wrong, good and bad. So uh, let me give an example to, to, to finish this and I'll, I'll wrap up. Um, you know, why did you not um, cheat on your wife? Someone says, uh, someone's accent, and, and, the, and the, the, the man says, uh, because I love her. That would be fine for me. That's a good answer. But there could be other answers, too, because I care about her. That's fine, too. Or because it would be the wrong thing to cheat on her. That's also a fine answer. Or because it uh, goes against the moral law. That would also be a fine answer. What wouldn't be a good answer in that kind of case would be, well, um, I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of my colleagues. Um, if it ever came out that I was cheating on my my wife, and it was discovered, I didn't want to, I didn't want that embarrassment. So, self-interested motivation off the table, dutiful motivation, altruistic motivation is just fine in my book. Yeah, I, you, you talk about pluralist account as well. Um, in, in your fifth chapter. That's where you talk about virtuous thoughts and different aspects of moral virtues in relation to um, honesty. So how are they related to honesty? Good. So this takes us to the third component. Yeah. So so again, we have, we have behavior we've already talked about. We just talked about motivation, but then thoughts matter too. Uh, so those can be thoughts like, you know, it's important to tell the truth or... I should keep my promises, or I shouldn't cheat on my wife, or I shouldn't steal from the grocery store. It seems like an honest person would have those kind of thoughts. Uh, I would expect them of an honest person. Uh, if you if you think you flip them around, uh, you know I should steal from the grocery store. That would be incompatible with the mindset of an honest person. I I would think. Uh, so we want to keep that side of it in mind. We also I think want to keep it when it comes to thoughts. A little bit more subtle matter of how much are we going to be honest? By that I mean uh, honesty comes in degrees, and there's such a thing as being perhaps too honest with another person. So, you know, we're just meeting on this podcast. Uh, 
you know, after this interview's over, we're wrapping up and suddenly I start like disclosing all my financial information. Uh, I start disclosing like, you know, my relationship history and so forth. And I tell you, everything I tell you is true. Um, and, you know, I'm not mis making any of it up, but I'm being way too honest with you. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you too much information. So I should have some, some cognizance. I should have some kind of sensibility about what is enough information by what is too much, what is oversharing. So that's another side of the of the cognitive aspect uh, or the thinking side of morality when it comes to honesty. Uh, another part of the book uh, that I was interested in was the idea of practical wisdom and and, and the role it plays in relation to uh, to the virtue of honesty. So can you talk about practical wisdom and you tell us what it what you mean in this case? Yeah, this is a this is a big topic and it's a, a very hard topic, a messy one. Mm. I'll I'll do my best um, to to kind of distill it down. So, going back thousands of years to people like Aristotle, uh, philosophers of character have always emphasized this idea of practical wisdom as crucial to being a good person, not just honest, but a virtuous person in general. And they've said things like. Well, it's 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 an intellectual virtue that all the other virtues need in order to count as virtues. You, you can't be uh, honest without having practical wisdom as well. You can't be compassionate without having practical wisdom as well, and you can't be um, you know temperate and and just and so forth. And so, lots of uh, focus has been on that virtue. And I've just still always been puzzled about what is it? What does it do? Do we need it? How is it helpful? How do we develop it? So um, let me say a little bit about, I think, a, a couple of things that are at least somewhat clear. Um, one is virtues can conflict. We've already seen that at the Nazi at the door example. Um, so we have, in that case, the, the virtue of honesty coming into conflict with the virtue of compassion. And so when these virtues, you know, so point being, Virtues are not always harmonious with each other. When they can come into conflict, then we need some way to decide which virtue should uh, get the upper hand, which one should be take the lead in the situation, like in the Nazi case, compassion. Well, that job has been assigned to practical wisdom. Uh, the, the job of deciding when virtues conflict, which one is the better of the two. And that seems to me a really important job. And I think, we, you know, we need something to do that job. Um, there are plenty of other examples besides not the, at the door, including all the white lie examples where virtues can come into conflict with each other. So, okay, that's something that's pretty good for practical wisdom. Um, in addition, here's another thing. Uh, practical wisdom seems pretty clear to me can help us discover the means to getting to our ends. Uh, so, if my end is uh, telling the truth, well, exactly how am I going to do that? What means am I going to take? How much information should I share? What tone of voice should I use? How compassionate should I be in telling the truth? Um, if my means is to um, not uh, mislead someone, same thing. If my means is to avoid BSing, same thing. So I'm sorry, my, my, sorry, I misspoke there. My goal is to avoid these things. How am I going to achieve those goals? Practical wisdom again can help us 
find, figure out the means to attain our goals here. So maybe I'll wrap it up with that. Um, two things I think are pretty safe when it comes to practical wisdom, figuring out conflicts between virtues, and also it's supposed to help us figure out the practical means to achieving our, our goals, like um, telling the truth, not misleading, and, uh, and not BSing other people. And, and when it comes to the idea of honesty, we, we tend to automatically associate it with virtue. And you talk about this aspect in the book as well. But um, sometimes honesty could lead to bad consequences or even morally wrong actions. So what are some arguments, let's say, against honesty as a virtue? Yeah, I think mean, you've, you've just um, taken us into a really interesting issue. I want to break it up into two parts. Um, mm -hmm. First, what, what, um, how should we think about the virtue status of honesty? And then is honesty even a virtue in the first place? Uh, so when we think about what makes something a virtue, there are, there's debate about that in the philosophy literature, as there is with everything. Uh, is something a virtue because of it promoting good consequences? Uh, is something a virtue because it has good motivation behind it? Is something a virtue because both maybe it has to have both good motivation and promotes good consequences? And so you get these uh, arguments about what are the criteria of a virtue? Uh, in, in a more utilitarian mindset where it's all about promoting good consequences in the world, well, okay, that's one approach. In a more uh, uh, Aristotelian, stemming from Aristotle, the focus is more on motivation. I also go that way. I, I uh, lean towards the motivational focus on what makes something a virtue. Uh, to me, to make that a little less abstract, um, it, it could be that someone has a virtue and it leads to bad consequences, but it's still virtue. Uh, um, I'll give you a quick illustration and I'll come back to the the other point about uh, honesty specifically and whether it's a virtue. Uh, let's let's uh, take this example. A farmer um, reliably, consistently donates extra crops to the food bank to help those in need who don't have enough food. Uh, the farmer does it for really good reasons. Uh, she's got great motives. She cares, has care and concern for those in need. Unbeknownst to her, Whenever she does this, the crops end up making people in need sick because of a, uh, you know, a disease that the crops have that no one knew about. There's no way the farmer could have known, no way the, the food bank could have known, none of them could know. So the, the consequences are bad. The people in need end up getting sick from the food. Um, nevertheless, I think that's no detraction. That does not detract from the farmer's virtue. I think the farmer in this case was still compassionate. So I, I think, again, it, motivation is what matters here and consequences don't decide whether something is a virtue or not. Now, uh, with all that said, there is an interesting question about honesty, which is what you also highlighted. Uh, could something really be a virtue if it leads to either an act with bad consequences? Well, I've already touched on that. But what if it leads to a wrong action? Uh, how could that be? I mean, how could how could it be that a virtue can ever lead you to do something morally wrong? Well, if you think that's never possible, if you think 
virtues have to lead you only to morally permissible or morally obligatory actions, then honesty is not going to be a virtue. Why? Well, um, go back to not stay at the door again. This is nice that we use that example because it kind of ties so many things together. Um, in the not stay at the door example, it looks like honesty will lead you to tell the truth to the Nazi, which would therefore lead to the death of the Jewish family and therefore a morally wrong action. So let me say it again. In that example, it looks like honesty will lead you to do the morally wrong action of telling the truth to the Nazi at the door. So therefore, you might conclude that honesty is not a virtue. Uh, and that would be a really bad result, I think. I mean, uh, and bad result is in like very shocking results. I mean, if, if there's if there's any virtue out there, it would probably be honesty. Uh, most people, you know, if you ask them to list, give me a top five list of virtues, honesty is almost always on the list. But now we've got this argument that says, oh, no, 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 think a little harder um, and you'll realize that honesty is not a virtue. Okay. Uh, my response, and then I'll, I'll end. Uh, my response to that is to deny the principle that a particular virtue can never lead to wrong action. Uh, my way of thinking is that overall, a virtuous person will never do a wrong action. A virtuous person who has all the virtues balanced in the right way. And so the virtuous person in the Nazi at the door case will tell a lie because they have the right balance, the right harmony of compassion and honesty. So overall, all things considered, all the virtues collectively, when balanced in the right way, will never lead to a wrong action. But a particular virtue in isolation by itself can lead to a wrong action, as in the Nazi at the door example. So that's, that's how I think about it. Hmm. And I must say, uh, your book sort of changed my mind as well, because I was one of the people who automatically associated uh, truth or honesty as a virtue. But then in the book, you kind of problematize it and you say that even virtue as a, uh, the virtue of honesty, or if honesty is a virtue, it still includes traits that we might traditionally categorize as vice. Uh, and and you, you go on and talk about it in the book anyhow. Um, so I have another question. So let's, uh, you, you have included a lot of literature review in your book. <clears throat> uh, given the extent of the psychological research that you have in the book, can we easily categorize or judge people as vile people uh, or virtuous people simply based on the level of honesty or dishonesty that they that we observe in them? Uh, I used to think it was automatically black and white, but apparently it isn't. It isn't. So it would be great if you could talk about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I can talk a long time. So I'll say some preliminary things and then you, you, you decide how long you want to go in it. Um, so you're, so far, we've just been focusing on the first half of the book. Um, the second half of the book is all, it's, it kind of shifts pretty dramatically into a more empirical discussion and a more psychologically informed discussion, addressing the question, not what honesty is or whether it's a virtue or not, but are people honest as a matter of fact? Uh, so today, what can we assume about most people? So just to get the categories on the table, and then I'll, I'll, um, speak to the question. Uh, one category is honest. You say most people are honest. Now that category comes in degrees. It's not black or white. It's not a 
you know, it's not either you're honest or you're not. It's you're honest and then you can be honest to different degrees. <clears throat> Another category is dishonest. That's the vice, the main vice. There are others too, but that's the main vice we'll focus on. Uh, and that also comes in degrees. The two people can be dishonest, but one's more dishonest than the other. And then I think that there's a middle space between honesty and dishonesty. Uh, I, I call it the space of mixed character, where you're partially good and partially bad. You're partially honest, partially dishonest. In some situations, you're honest. some situations, you're dishonest. But hey, you don't have enough consistency to your honesty to count as honest. And you don't have enough uh, consistency to, in your dishonesty to count as dishonest. Uh, other people like Aristotle have different ways of thinking about this middle space. We get, get into all that sometime. But the picture I got just to put on the table is uh, three categories, each of which comes in degrees. Honesty on one side, dishonesty on the other side, and mixed character in the middle. Now, that's just the categories. It doesn't tell you where people are. Um, and for that, I need to go outside of philosophy. And I, I said, well, okay, I could observe people in my ordinary experience, my ordinary life, and say, oh, okay, I see them cheating on my students, or I see my, someone lying. Okay, therefore, dishonest. But that's not a very careful, not a very systematic way to draw conclusions about most people. It's also very selective, looking at just a couple isolated actions. Uh, what I wanted, you know, was something more systematic than that. I could go to history. I could go to religion. I could go to the news. You know, there, there, there are plus and minuses to different sources. But what I did was I followed a recent trend in philosophy of examining the psychological evidence in a very careful manner. Examining not just one study in psychology, but hundreds of studies out there that pertain in particular to lying and cheating and see what kind of overall pattern of uh, behavior emerges from the, those studies. Because no one study is going to prove anything or a couple studies are not going to prove anything. And then there's a whole replication pro a crisis that's going on now. I want to see where more generally is there a trend existing in the studies on cheating or on lying? And to uh, boil it down, and I can you know speak much more detail about this if you like, but to boil it down to the nuts and bolts, um, that the trend I observed was that uh, people in certain circumstances were quite willing to tell the truth or not cheat, and then in other circumstances. You could nudge them in certain ways or move them off that behavior pretty quickly to get them to cheat. So I'll give uh, uh, one example of a study, and then I'll state my overall conclusion. Mm. Um, here's a, an example of a study that I like to use a lot. Uh, it's a, I'm, a, I'm a, a professor, so it's a, a study having to do with students uh, taking a test. Except in this test, you get paid 50 cents U.S. per correct answer. And in one group, the students uh, came in, they took the test, there were 20 problems, they, they did their best, so they turned in their results, it was graded by the person in charge, they were paid based on their performance. And let's say this particular study I'm thinking of, they got 7 out of 20 correct. That another group of, stud of students came in, they were given the same test, 
same incentive, 50 cents for a correct answer. Uh, they took the test. They finished. At this point, they were the ones who graded the test. They destroyed it. They destroyed all their materials. There was no paper trail. And they got to verbally report how well they did. And in this group, they got, or at least in quotation marks, they got uh, 14 out of 20 correct. So 7 out of 20 the first, 14 out of 20 the second. Uh, big shift based, I think, uh, clearly on the opportunity to cheat to make money. And then uh, to finish the study, a, a third group, and this was uh, 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 a later study, a different experimenters, but the, the point will still hold. Uh, another group comes in, they're given the, the test, uh, 20, 50 cents per correct answer. But before they take the test, they're told to sign their school's honor code or honesty pledge that they're not going to lie, cheat, or steal or do anything against the honor code. They sign, they take the test, they uh, finish, they, the materials are theirs to grade, they, they destroy the materials, they verbally report, and this group, the average drops back down to the baseline original number. So what do I take from that? Again, nothing, it doesn't prove anything, it's just one study. But a couple of things I take from it. One, in certain circumstances, people are willing to cheat. That doesn't reflect well in their honesty. In other circumstances, pretty closely, a similar circumstances, not willing to cheat. It does reflect well in their honesty. And so from studies like these and many others, to draw it all to a conclusion, um, I come away with a picture of mixed character here of most people, not all, I think it's a bell curve, there's some outliers on both sides, but most people are, are a mixed bag with some tendencies to be honest, some tendencies to be dishonest, but we're not good enough uh, to count as honest. Fortunately, we're not bad enough most of the time to count as dishonest. So that's my my picture in a nutshell. Uh, that 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 was a great explanation, but I do like to um, remind our listeners uh, to read the book because it's. Um, it's it's really complicated, and you you carefully kind of unpack these ideas, and especially like your conclusion where you talk um, um, about maybe other possibilities, the relationship between guilt and honesty, relief and guilt, and a desire for inner peace. And uh, I'm just curious to know if there is any other project you're currently working on, or if uh, any other book that we might expect anytime soon that might pick up these ideas. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this was a a little bit more of an academic book. What we're talking about today, it was marketed as a crossover, so it's crossover yeah. academic and trade. What I'm working on now is a completely trade book uh, written for a wide audience with no background at all in philosophy or psychology that uh, is focused on the, on the topic of honesty. Um, so I'm going to make it shorter. I'm going to make it less technical, more accessible. Uh, and also bring in a lot more current events, po politics, sports, you know, celebrities, and so forth, uh, to uh, to kind of make it uh, a little bit more relatable. Um, and I hope to have that done in a, a year from now, if all goes well. Yeah, wonderful. Um, thank you very, very much for your time uh, and sharing your thoughts with us on New, on New Books Network. It was great to, to have a conversation. Your questions were wonderful. And Maybe I can come back again in the future. Sure.